Welcome back to Spotlight 19. Justin Tracy here. We have a great show for you. Pat Ryan came in for his tiny town hall on February 18th and met with a group of New York 19 constituents. You might actually be hearing from some of the same voices as last week during Gareth's show. Our series was open to everyone who wanted to come in who was still undecided and... At the end of the series, we will be producing a candidate's guide after the determination of who will be on the ballot. Just a note on the process to determine who will end up on the primary ballot actually starts on March 6th. The six candidates need 1,200 signatures of registered in-district Democrats to end up on the ballot, and none of those signatories can actually sign more than one petition. If you are interested in signing or carrying a petition for any of the candidates, please reach out to us via email to nyspotlight19 at gmail.com. Moving on to John Faso. He is on recess this week, so there are no votes to talk about, and he still has an empty schedule for his public events as usual. We wanted actually to go back to his teletown hall which he had on February 15th, a day after the Parkland High School shooting. Hi, yes. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Hi, Alice. Hi. I'm calling um, because I, you um, had mentioned on your call just now that um, in the Clinton era, there was a ban on assault weapons and there was no difference. First of all, we're not allowed to study guns because um, the funding was cut from the CDC. But I just want to call your attention to an obvious point in that in the Clinton era, there were no mass school shootings. So I do believe that is a bit of evidence. Also, um, I want to call on you to take a stand against um, donations from the NRA that are lining the pockets of people in uh, the Senate and the Congress. Right now, people are getting rich and making money off of gun sales. The NRA exists to enrich the gun uh, dealers in this country at the expense of our children's lives. Every day, people are being killed by AK-15s and AK-17s. There is no reason to have guns that the only reason they exist is to kill people. I urge you to take a stand, use your moral leadership, and stand up to the gun lobby and do something to prevent well, the mass murder of our children. I'm afraid Alice, to send my kids Alice, to school every day. Yeah. Alice, I, I, I appreciate your, uh, uh, your strongly held view on this. Let me tell you... Um, uh, I have had support from the NRA in the past, and uh, the fact of the matter is, is that the N- money from the NRA is, is hardly, uh, is very, very little. What the NRA is are thousands of sportsmen and gun owners and Second Amendment supporters and thousands of them in our district, and uh, they are a very strong constituency, and the reason is, is because they fervently uh, believe in the Second Amendment. Uh, the notion that somehow uh, a donation from an organization like that uh, affects my view is just simply not the case. Uh, I support the Second Amendment, but I also support reasonable efforts to keep guns out of the hands of people who would use them illegally. And I would point out to you as well that uh, there are very few um, uh, instances where people who have legally acquired firearms uh, commit crimes with those firearms. The vast majority of gun crimes and uh, that are committed in our country are committed by people who illegally 
acquire guns. And they're not long guns, they're generally handguns. So it's, you know, we have a different perspective on this issue. I realize you, you strongly uh, feel uh, fervently about this question uh, and this topic, but I, I think that we have to be able to, people who are on different sides of this point of view don't want to see the kind of thing that happened yesterday in Florida. So I think we should focus our attention on how do we prevent folks like that young man who obviously was very disturbed to get uh, firearms, which he should not have been able to get, uh, given his uh, history of being expelled from school and having apparently uh, other incidences that uh, uh, caused him to be uh, a person of concern. So I think that's really the, the key here. It's telling that Faso, like Senator Marco Rubio, won't commit to rejecting NRA money. All of our New York 19 candidates immediately came out for stronger gun control legislation in the aftermath of the shooting. All Democratic candidates even said they would reject any NRA money donated. And you'll hear Pat Ryan do just that in a few minutes. And we're seeing now this hashtag never again movement is gaining traction. We saw Antonio Delgado and Gareth Rhodes attending a rally with kids in Red Hook on February 19th in the pouring rain. Meanwhile, since the February 15th town hall, Fazo has not changed his tune much on the gun debate. But he did not go as far as his colleague in NY22, Claudia Tenney, who said most mass shooters are Democrats. Fazo did say he supports the president's direction to the Department of Justice to look into banning bump stocks, the device used in Las Vegas. But here's the thing. Congress, where Faso works, could easily be working on legislation. Faso could be co-sponsoring these bills to ban assault weapons, close any loopholes, but he won't. He hasn't, and he actually has made us less safe since he took office. Fact number one. Faso, who ran for New York State Comptroller in 1994, was pushed out of running by state Republicans, who favored Herbert London. Number two. After Faso was pushed out of running for Comptroller, he became the Assembly Campaign Committee Chairman for the Republicans. And number three. In 1993... Faso opposed and sued after the creation of the Citizens Utility Board, a consumer watchdog group, which Governor Maria Cuomo had created. The agency would have testified in hearings on utility rate hikes. For example, they would have been a watchdog agency that could testify now in hearings on Central Hudson's plans to hike up your electricity bill. Number four. In 1994, Faso was successful in his lawsuit and Mario Cuomo's creation of the Citizens Utility Board was struck down. Number 5. In 1994, after Republican George Pataki won the race for New York State Governor, Faso was part of the transition team and he wrote the state budget. Now for our tiny town hall featuring Pat Ryan. Here on Spotlight 19. I'm Matreya Motel, 
I live in Rosendale, and I have a video blog called I, as in the eye in your face, ionpolitics.net. Great. Thanks for being here. I'm glad to be here. Okay. So. And how, you, how old are you? I'm 12 years old. You're 12 years old. So you said on Twitter that you don't think that people should have automatic weapons after the school shooting? Yeah. What actions will you actually take to make sure that this doesn't happen? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad it's you asking this question because I'm sure I can't imagine what it's like to have to worry about this going to, when I was going to school, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't have to worry about this. And we had a moment of silence at school in the morning. Yeah. And I, I, on Friday night, actually, I was at a meeting with a group and there was a mother there who has two children and she had to drop off her children at school on Friday morning. And she was just talking about how hard it was for her and to, to just feel this deep fear in her in her gut dropping her own kids off at the school that she's dropped them off hundreds of times at. And she, she completely broke down in front of this group and, and the whole room was just sort of sharing in that, that moment. And, uh, I, I know we say it over and over and over, but I, I hope, and I, it, we have to use this, this last horrific attack as a call to action. And I said, I said it on Twitter and I've said it to everyone I've been able to talk to enough is enough. And, um, you're right. I think I, 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 uh, in, in my service over the course of two deployments in Iraq, 27 months, I carried that exact weapon that, that a 19 year old young man on our soil here in our country was able to bring into a school and and use on his own fellow students and that to me i i still frankly i i can't understand how that happens and and how we've gotten to this point um so i think we know what we need we know the to your question we know the policies that we need to put in place we have to ramp up background checks we have to make it uh, those background checks much more stringent. We have to figure out how to remove, um, you know, some the, the bump stocks that were used in uh, Las Vegas. We've got to figure out how to better link up uh, the the databases that track people with mental health issues and mental illness into the background check system. Uh, and frankly, I think we also have to recognize that a weapon like the AR-15 that was purely designed for war and inflicting mass casualties, a weapon that fires a 5.56 millimeter round at high velocity that's designed to enter a human body and not exit, but in fact, bounce around to inflict as much internal damage as possible. That has no place in our schools, on our, in our churches, at our concerts, in our neighborhoods. And uh, that is something that I firmly and deeply believe in. And I think, frankly, my growing up as, you know, around responsible gun owners and my service in, in being a responsible gun owner, I can lead us to finally take some real substantive action on this. That's very important to me. It's going to be a challenge, though. The NRA is a very powerful organization that contributes to the campaigns of many people in Washington. Yeah, including our our own representative, John Faso, who's got an mm -hmm. A rating from the NRA, who's taken thousands, 
actually tens of thousands of dollars from them and who on all these issues since he's been in Congress has voted the wrong way from the, the silencer bill to the concealed carry reciprocity bill. So we have to hold him accountable for that. He actually voted in his first week in Congress for a bill to block a bill that would have improved the, the sharing of people with mental health issues um, being flagged in the, in the background check system. So you're right. And I have no illusions about how hard this will be. I think that's what leadership is about, frankly. It's about in moments where there, there's challenge and, and confusion, can you bring people together around something that clearly has to happen? So I, I think we can do it. And I think it's going to be our generation, frankly. People like you spe speaking up and, and some of the students that have spoken up from, from this attack. Uh, so I'm glad that, you're, that you have your blog, that you're talking about this. And I hope more young people keep talking about it. Okay. Thanks. You're welcome. Um, and secondly, what makes you think you can beat Faso? <laughs> this man who takes thousands of dollars from all kinds of organizations and knows how to manipulate people. What makes you think you can beat him? Yeah, well, I think there's there's two parts to that question. One is about me and, and whether I can beat him. But the other question is, it's actually not about me. It's about the you know voters who are going to come out and and look at him and look at at me and, and decide who's better. So from my perspective, I have no doubt. I mean, I've faced much, much harder adversaries in my life, both in my military service and in other parts of my life than John Faso, who I actually don't think has much integrity, doesn't have much of a backbone. I went up and confronted him at a, the Ulster County Chamber of Commerce breakfast a few weeks ago on healthcare, and when I pressed him on this, <clears throat> and and he felt he realized I wasn't just going to take his non-answers, he literally turned his back on me and walked away because he, you know, he realized this conversation wasn't going the way he wanted. So I have full confidence I'll be able to to spar it out with him. And uh, but but more than than me, it, it's frankly I think. I've talked to so many people across this district who recognize he does not have their backs. He's voting for his own interest. He's voting for his party's interest on everything from healthcare to the environment um, and, and a whole host of other issues. So I think it's really about can I help shed light on the fact that he, the actions he's taken have gone against those he's supposed to represent. And I have faith that people here will see that and they'll come out and, and vote and make their voices heard. So I think we can do it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for talking. Thank you. Great questions. My name is Dustin. I'm the owner of Planet Woodstock Music. I grew up in this area. I've been here my whole life. And thank you for uh, having me on this podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah. And also thank you for your service, because I believe you're the only one that's running that has served in the military, and I think that is important in Congress. My question is... And this comes up a lot as far as musicians and people that kind of do a lot of different things for a living that I, not I come across on the key issues of health insurance. Whenever I hear the word insurance, it means like you have to pay for it and it keeps going up and up and up. There's not able to have a control over the pricing of it. When everybody talks about affordable health care, it never really is. Yep. So what is something that you could do as a congressperson to, to help address that issue particularly? Yeah, yeah. And I think the the way you're talking about it is really important too, which is 
as a small business owner or someone who might be in transition from school to business um, or, or some other job, these are these moments in life where we're sort of at a transition point. And the way I think our economy is going, where there's going to be a lot more movement and fluidity and transitions and people having to go back to school to learn new skills, it's even more important that people have that continuity of healthcare coverage so that they just don't have that that economic insecurity. And frankly, they're willing to and able to take more risk and, and start a business. So when I was actually between two of my startups, I was in the same situation. I had no, excuse me, no healthcare coverage. And if the Affordable Care Act hadn't been put in place and I wasn't able to get, go on the New York exchange and get a plan, I would have been, you know, for, it was about a six month period. I would have been totally uh, out of luck. Now, the, the, the problem you are asking about those within that framework, the cost. And I mean, I was just looking at the exchange, the New York exchange rates last week, depending on where you're at, of course, I mean, it's $800 or more per month, which is just astronomical uh, to expect people to, to afford that. I mean, I think one thing we don't frankly talk about enough is that the Affordable Care Act did bring relatively bring those costs down compared to what they would have been. Um, but, but they're still way too high. So I think the key things we can do to bring down the cost one, I mean, it, it, the underlying concept of insurance is that everyone has to have it for, for the cost to be reasonable. So removing the mandate in the way the Republicans just did is going to drive up the cost anywhere from 10 to 15% more. So we've got to have, everyone has to be in the system to share. But I believe the there's no control. Even if you make everybody pay for it, that doesn't necessarily make the insurance company charge less. And that's the, I think, the, the big underlying problem as well. If you're, if you're a for-profit corporation, your idea is to make money. And if you're an insurance company, you're at your, your main point sure. of existence is to make money. So forcing everybody to purchase your product doesn't necessarily incentivize lowering the cost of it. That's, that's yeah, I think, yeah. where I, I differ from like when everybody talks about health insurance, when it's really a health care issue that needs to be talked about more, where the prices of all these different things that you go to the hospital for are astronomical when they shouldn't be. Right. Yeah. So step one, I think you have to get everybody on, but, but that's one of multiple steps. So step two is, uh, I think you're right. Having a profit motive in what is a public good of health doesn't make sense and it's driving up costs. So, um, I think the, the fastest way to bring down costs would actually be to introduce some sort of a public option within the framework of what you can choose. I think we could actually get that done even under the current framework we have in Washington. Hopefully we'll take back the House and the Senate and we'll be able to change that. But even now, I think we could actually get that through. Um, if you introduce a public option, it would drive down costs for all the other plans and people would have a, a effectively a Medicare plan uh, that they could buy into, which would, which would for most people be a lower rate. Um, and then I think the other big pieces that we don't talk about enough is within the confines of the sector, how do we bring down the cost of every, 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 um, operation, every, every treatment. So there's a lot of great stuff that actually happened in the affordable care act to move from what's called fee for service, where, uh, it incentivized doctors to just do more procedures to, to rack up the bill to something called value-based payments, where it bundles it all together and it brings down costs significantly. The Trump administration is trying to get rid of that, which would actually drive up costs. So we need more of that. Um, we have to give negotiating power 
to the government to bring down prescription drug prices. That is somewhere that's somewhere in the realm of 20% of the cost of our system right now is around prescription drugs. And we know that's just about political will to go up against the pharma industry and bring those prices down. Um, and then I think the other thing we need to do to bring down costs is just further incentivize people to, to, uh, actually participate and take advantage of preventive care and regular, uh, care so that we're not, uh, getting to the point where someone's going to the emergency room to see a doctor for the first time. And the cost is 10 or 20 times what it would have been if we'd been able to treat something early on. So this is a, how we get, how we wrap our hands around bringing down healthcare costs in our country. I mean, this is an existential situation and, and there is no, frankly, in my mind, no single silver bullet answer. It's going to be a whole bunch of things to both cover more people, um, get better quality care and bring down the cost. And we have to do all those together. All right. Yeah, that was my question there. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. My name is Brian Brannick. I live in Socrates, New York. Um, I work as a project manager for an environmental company up in Albany. Hi, Pat. Hey. Thanks for coming out and doing this. Yeah. I appreciate you stepping up, doing some civic engagement. It's important in this day and age. And thanks to Saja and Tracy. I mean, they're doing, they're doing God's work here, having people in their house and doing this thing. So it's great. Um, and my question for you is in Matreo touched on it a little bit is uh, my biggest issue and my biggest concern, I think, among many, many things is campaign finance. Yeah. There's way too much money in politics. One of your opponents has recently come out and said they would not accept any campaign donations from corporations or special interests. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to make that statement? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one, no one can take donations from corporations. So we've all already agreed to do that. But I'll explicitly, yeah, absolutely. We you can, you could potentially take money from corporate PACs, which John Fassa has taken tens of thousands or if not hundreds of thousands. That's something that, that I will not do. Um, someone asked me yesterday if we would take money from the NRA. Absolutely, unequivocally, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, from pharma, absolutely, unequivocally, no. Money in our political system, the best way I've been able to describe and articulate i actually think it's rotting the core of our democracy from the inside out and i i'm seeing it really up close and personal uh in the course of the campaign since i've been in the race in june and it's frankly it's disgusting i mean it really is and we have to act quickly and decisively on this i I think uh a a uh, constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United is something we absolutely need to do. If we can't get that through, then I think we could try a legislative fix to address that. Um, there are lots of good examples around the country at the state level, Connecticut, for example, of how to do public financing of campaigns in a way that totally changes the way that this works, where it really is not about money. It's about ideas, and it, it allows anyone who wants to participate and run to do so. And that's how it should be that's how it was designed um within the framework that we've got we're trying our best to to do the right thing uh over 60 percent of our donations have been from uh quote unquote small donors which is by the fec that's under 200 dollars. i don't think that's very small um but that's how the fec kind of breaks it down so i'm i'm very proud of that and I hope we're going to continue to try to up that percentage as, as we keep going. And, and we have been upping it as we're out there more talking to people. That's how it should work. You know, we were, I was up in Sullivan County last week. We had a, an event and someone, 
uh, felt and said, hey, I think you're a great candidate that can win for us. And I want to give you $10. And they wrote a check. And that, I mean, that's, that's how it should work. And that, that we need more of that kind of approach. Great. And just to switch gears a little bit, um, during your time in Iraq, and, you know, I, I know a little bit about history. I don't know a lot. I don't think any of us really know exactly what's going on in the Middle East right now. It seems to me that Iraq and Afghanistan are following the lesson that we did not learn in Vietnam and the lesson that we didn't learn from the Soviet Union in Afghanistan in the 80s. Is there anything that you experienced that you saw over there that would lead you to say, <clears throat> this is a potential strategy, this is something we could be doing differently to get us in a position where we can get out of these endless wars and yeah. not start new ones? Well, yeah. So I think number one, number one is... If there's anything I learned, seeing firsthand the limitations of what we can do with military force abroad. I mean, you had hundreds of thousands of American soldiers sent there, I think, in a war, particularly in Iraq, that was not necessary and, and not well uh, justified, uh, trying to do their best, trying to bring some sense of stability to a country we had completely upended and, and ripped apart and trying to take care of their own fellow American soldiers as well and, and bring as many people home as we could. And um, I, I, a big part of the reason I'm in this race is I think we need more leaders in Congress who have been on the receiving end of an order to go to war and understand the gravity of that decision. Frankly, it's been too easy to send troops into harm's way, and Congress hasn't played their constitutionally defined uh, role in overseeing that decision to, to use military force and to, to fund our, our military. Uh, in terms of lessons learned of assuming we do decide to go to war, how do we, how do we do it better in, in these kinds of conflicts? I mean, I think something we, we fundamentally got wrong, continue to get wrong is the recognition that, uh, military operations are really only, um, conducted in order to achieve some political end and and we got very focused in in vietnam and in iraq and afghanistan and, and other places we are right now on how many you know al-qaeda targets have we killed or how many operations did we conduct we didn't put in the the real work which is harder and less concrete and less satisfying of political engagement diplomacy economic tradecraft um so the, the any military gains we I saw us achieve and fight for in Iraq were never converted into real lasting political gains. And I think, again, that's something that was not really being discussed as we were continue to send hundreds of thousands of, of troops there. So if we are going to do something like this, which I think has to be an absolute last resort in the future, we need to go in understanding what are our political goals, what military means and diplomatic means will be required to do that. And let's have a real public, transparent conversation with the American people about what that's going to take. We haven't done that. I don't think we've really done that since World War II in this country, frankly. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, Pat. Hey. My name's Matt from Kingston. Matt Dunn from Kingston. Um, my question is, in 2011, you worked for Barraco Technologies, right? Yes. And in your work with Barraco Technologies... Peter Thiel's company, Palantir, and others engaged or were 
looking forward to engage in a campaign to discredit and undermine environmental organizations, union organizations, and democratic organizations such as MoveOn.org. These organizations represent and advocate for many of the things that we believe in as Democrats, fighting against global warming, representing employees to improve benefits and better wages, um, and uh, opposing the special interest that uh, big corporations uh, have in their Republican counterparts. So my question for you is, why would you want to help the Chamber of Commerce discredit these organizations that are intending to make our lives better? I, I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't want to help them. I mean, I grew up in a union household. My mom's a career lifelong teacher. No one understands the value of, of labor and and other progressive groups more than me. So uh, when I was at this company, Barico, I think you're alluding to there was there was a proposal that we were asked to write that I played a role in writing. Uh, we never actually did any of that work, but there was a, a hack of our email and that proposal became public. And so I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around what was going on, but we never did anything along the lines of, of what you're talking about. So, so while the contract with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce did not come to fruition, there, there was the proposal that you were involved with in working with Palantir and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's uh, uh, law firm to discredit these organizations. My question for you is not what you wouldn't want to do in the future, but why did you want to engage in those practices at the time? I didn't want to engage in those practices at the time. We didn't engage in those practices at the time. We were approached by this law firm with very little information of, hey, could you, could you collect, help us analyze some publicly available data that we have? We were trying to understand what is this even about we wrote a very high level proposal of how we might take conceptual data and organize it better and, and analyze it and that's the proposal that that we wrote to them uh, we never advocated anything of uh, what you're talking about so from reading the emails that are available on on wikileaks it, it appeared that that there was a proposal that Palantir and Barico Technologies would do the work for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce at a million dollars a month. And negotiations went back and forth. To me, if, if somebody came to propose to discredit, move on, labor organizations, environmental organizations, that issue is dead in the water. I agree. It, it, but this issue continued. It didn't continue. And it went over a series of time. That's what it appears from the emails. Well, I think we've all seen that WikiLeaks and a lot of things that come out of that organization is not necessarily representative of, of reality in, in many situations. So. so at the time, did you support the uh, Palantir and Barrico's Technologies intention to discredit those organizations? No, I just said that multiple times. Okay. Thank you. Hey. Hi. Good morning, Pat. Long morning. time no see. Yeah, since yesterday morning. <laughs> As you know, I'm Marlene Alfieri. I'm with Move Forward New York. And we, we're neighbors, actually. 
Um, so I'm actually here with a question about HUD, which is Housing and Urban Development. And what I want to know is Ben Carson is proposing really deep cuts for affordable um, housing as well as for senior citizen housing. And you, I have problems breathing. So, <clears throat> so what I want to know is how do you plan to protect low-income housing and housing for seniors that's affordable? Yeah. And, I mean, to see Ben Carson as the, like many other heads of, the, of agencies under the Trump administration, to see individuals who, one, I don't think even understand the mission of the organization they're leading, or if they do understand it, they're, they've been publicly and vehemently on the record against the existence of that agency that they're supposed to lead from Prude at the EPA to, you know, Rick Perry with uh, energy and so on. So deeply concerned about the, the cabinet that we have ripping apart what I think are core foundational agencies and institutions that have allowed everybody in our country to have equal access to affordable housing and education and health and, and so many other things. So um, we can't, we can't uh, sit back. We just can't allow uh, ourselves to get comfortable with the fact that you have someone like Ben Carson leading this. So I, I think that's frankly a big part of it is just not being willing to let them get away with the agenda that they have. That's a big part of the reason why we have to take back the house is so that we have some check on what they're trying to do. The other thing is uh, a lot of what HUD is doing is not in the legislative realm, but it's in the executive and, and regulatory realm. But there is a big role, I think, for members of Congress to play in fighting back. And this is something where I get very frustrated when a lot of members of Congress uh, are not doing this part of their job very well, which is making sure that they or their staff are attending these different interagency roundtables that are happening to really fight on these nitty-gritty policies. Um, you know, one thing that really, uh, and, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday at, at, in Marlboro, um, my grandmother, uh, who, who, uh, was counting on my grandfather's pension from IBM to retire, uh, when, when he passed away, she didn't have enough money to be able to move into an assisted living facility that would actually give her the care she needed and, and the stability she needed. And uh, we turned actually to Chris Gibson, who was our member of Congress at the time, my family, my parents. And Chris fought really hard to get uh, these VA benefits that my grandfather had earned in his service in World War II to my grandmother, thousands of dollars a month that she could rely on to pay for a better housing situation for her. And frankly, you know, I, I will forever appreciate and respect Congressman Gibson for that alone because it wasn't about party. It wasn't about anything other than the fact that this woman who had done everything right, everything we had asked her to do, uh, needed help and was entitled to, to this benefit and she wasn't getting it and he fought and his staff fought. And that concept of constituent services and being there and available and actually fighting for for your constituents we've lost that and FASO has definitely lost it but a lot of other members of congress have lost it too and that's something that's really important that i would prioritize okay i have another question 
I we re- my husband and I Joel my husband Joel and I recently joined a group called Manufactured Homes Action. We live in a double wide mobile home. They can you know so it's a manufactured home, and uh, recently these parks have been are being purchased by major corporations, and all of their rents are going up anywhere between one hundred and fifty dollars to two hundred dollars a month, in addition to what they're already paying. Considering we have Aloha Acres in Newport and my little park up in Gardner and uh, quite a few other mobile home parks in this area, you know, um, what will you do to help protect our um, people that are on fixed incomes living in these parks? I know Aloha Acres is completely senior citizens, has well over 200 people. How can we count? What can we do to count on you? How can we count on you? as people that are living in this situation and most of, most of us on a lower income. Yeah. I, and I think this is something that I've heard as I've traveled across the district too. the ability to continue to afford the housing that you're living in and, or, or, you know, afford to, to move somewhere, somewhere else is front of mind for every, every single person. So, I mean, one, I think in working, uh, with HUD in the way we just talked about. Two is fighting for more proactive legislation to actually make sure that we're, we're keeping some level of control on the rising costs of, of real estate. As, as we get you know more people coming up here, that's good, but we also have to make sure that we're balance, you know, having that right balance and keeping it affordable for those that, that have been living here. Um, and, uh, and then I think the third thing is we got to figure out how for for those who are still in the workforce, how we get wages up. I mean, wages have been declining in real terms in our community here since the 2008 economic crash. And so it's not surprising that the cost of education and housing and gas and food and health insurance, as we talked about, keep going up and our wages are stagnant. So, I mean, I think we got to fight to bring up the minimum wage, which is embarrassingly low federally and, and even at the state level. But then we also have to figure out how to make much more substantive investment in our education system to give better training and skills to our young people so they can earn more competitive wages. And that all, I mean, it all feeds into your question. I think you're right. And my last like thought on this is I'm glad you asked the question the way you asked it, because it's really easy. And I, I'm guilty of this sometimes, too, of talking about policy in a very squishy way you know we need to improve our education and training system but we have to explain what that means and what that translates to for for people who are you know whether it's worried about their child who's struggling with opioid addiction or worried about how they're going to save enough money to send their kid to college or worried about whether they can keep paying uh, their mortgage or their rent we have to make it real for people and that's something that we're trying to do as much as we can in, in talking about these issues. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. And we'll be seeing you soon. Yeah, we'll see you in, and you. See in the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, my name is Doug Motel, and I live in Rosendale. And, uh, and, and you have the coolest daughter I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we're not sure how we got, We're not sure how that happened, but we, we agree. Um, I know that by December 31st, the minimum wage in New York City is going to be $15 an hour. And here it's going to be less than 11 And I don't understand that because it's honestly not too cheap, so much cheaper to live here. Yeah. Uh, it's not that much cheaper. 
And uh, I'm, I want to understand how that happened. And, uh, and if you understand how that happened, can you explain it to me? And can you tell me how you uh, could fix that if you agree that it needs to be fixed? Yeah, well, I definitely agree it needs to be fixed. I mean, I think I'm sure, the way it happened, I think, is it's a back and forth with I've talked to a lot of small business owners here, particularly farmers um, and other small business owners who are concerned that uh, too, too rapid a, a raise in their minimum wage would put them out of business. I'm not saying that's necessarily accurate, but, but I, you know, 97% of the companies in, in the district are small under a hundred employees. Almost half of those are under 20 employees. And so to have a significant rapid raise in cost for a small businesses could be debilitating. And I don't think, I think we all agree. We don't want our small businesses that are already trying to compete with the big mega companies to go to have more downward pressure on them. So I think that that's why um, it's, it's, it's slower. I'm not saying that's right. I, I do think we have to fight to get it up faster. And an idea I have here is we, we I think, need to better differentiate and, and uh, draw a distinction between small businesses and your Walmarts and your big mega corporations that um, have the ability to absorb and are already paying paying too low wages in my opinion um that to me is a logical starting point to speed it up um recognizing that you know some of the farmers i've talked to in columbia county and schoharie county unfortunately it would literally put them out of business to, to pay that wage um but i think there are other companies in the economy here um the big box stores and others that we know could absorb that, that are sitting on record levels of cash that they're not paying to their to their workers, that they're paying to shareholders or they're just sitting on. So I think an approach that uh, recognizes that and, and puts more pressure on uh, larger corporations first. And then, and ultimately I think the only way we get wages up in a sustainable way is to, to train and educate people better, frankly. I mean, I think that we, we want to, we have to address it quickly with the wage side, but we also have to address it by arming young people with skills that allow them to demand better wages. That's what's ultimately going to allow it to, to work and be sustainable. So um, when I see us, you know, Betsy DeVos cutting funding or us going towards privatization of our public education system, that's obviously the wrong direction. One of the big things I've talked a lot about is vocational and skills training programs and partnership with community colleges and other skills training programs, um, ramping them up, giving them more resources so that, so that, uh, people have those skills. I, I, I've told this story a few times. Um, we, we live in Gardner, we drive to Kingston where our office is. And for several months, there was this big billboard that said diesel mechanics needed uh, for trailways, buses. And I actually, we know some of the folks who work and, and own trailways. And I called them. I was like, what's going on here? And they, were, they said, we cannot find qualified, certified diesel mechanics. And the wages are, I think, three or four times the minimum wage for, for that job. Uh, but there's no one coming through these certification programs. That's, that's an abomination that that's the case. And there's 6 million open jobs in the country unfilled because 
young people and, and workers don't have the skills they need. So I think it, that all is, is a piece of it. This district is unusual in that, uh, you know, overwhelmingly Bernie Sanders, you know, was supported. And yet, uh, ultimately, uh, Trump won this district. So we have some very, very uh, progressive minded people. We also have some very conservative people here. And so I'm wondering how you imagine uh, the message to include both the very left-wing people and the very right-wing people. Yeah. And if I have my data right, I think Bernie Sanders won in the district in the primary against Hillary about 60-40 um, was, was the data. And, and Trump obviously won the Republican primary. Um, so I think, and I'll talk about the policy side, but I also think there's another kind of narrative there, which is that... Um, there, there are two pieces beyond policy differences that I think allowed the 7% of people who voted for President Obama in 2012, that was the difference that he won by here, to, to, and then Trump won by the same 7% four years later in the district in the presidential. Um, and I think, frankly, it's that the status quo system as it's existed from healthcare to the economy to our tax plan has not benefited people, especially here in more rural economically challenged parts of New York and, and our whole country. And so the common theme between President Obama's first campaign and, and Trump's, although very different policy answers, was we have to fundamentally change the status quo because both both uh, parties within the establishment are not helping and speaking to uh, and, and actually solving the problems that people here are, are facing. Um, so I actually think there's a lot of commonality in people that I've talked to and heard from that that's what they want to see change. Now, how we do that is, is of course, where we get the differences. But I, again, I think there's a lot of commonality here that people feel like large companies and institutions that have secured kind of monopolies or near monopolies or oligopies of, uh, in, in parts of our economy um, need to be challenged and and uh we need to level the playing field again for um whether it's a small business owner or whether it's a family that can't afford to send their 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 kid to a cop to the college that they want to send them to um we have we have to empower those folks again so um I, I think that we can actually bring people together around a common that common theme um and that there's more differences or excuse me, more similarities in what people are looking for than there actually are differences. You're listening to Spotlight 19. Moving on now to a one-on-one -on -one interview. As you know, we have Pat Ryan, so here's Sarge's interview with Pat. Welcome back. Uh, we're here today with Pat Ryan, who's back after his appearance back in July. So thank you again for taking the time to be here and answering everyone's questions and uh, sitting down with us again. I know you guys have a packed schedule at this point. Well, it's a lot colder than uh, last time I was here when we had uh, fans blowing in and uh, but it's great to be back in Hurley, and and thank you for having me. Yeah, it's definitely a much more pleasant experience in the studio, <laughs> for sure. Um, so I have a few follow-up questions. We just had some residents here. Um, I know you've been traveling around the district. 
So we're at this crossroads now where we have six candidates who I think at the time you were running, a lot of them had already filed and you've now gotten to know them a lot. And we have a very active electorate who's talking about things and analyzing every little thing that you guys do. But then there are also a lot of voters who aren't maybe as engaged, but do plan to vote in June. So one of the things that those types of people are using as a gauge is your candidate website. And you have a section called priorities, and it includes economy, health, education, energy, opioid crisis, and keeping the country safe and secure. We're going to be rolling out a lot more. I, I've been actually yelling at my team for, uh, <laughs> we, we have a lot more content to put up, but it's moving slower than I would like. So it's not, unfortunately, it's not comprehensive yet, but happy to talk more about stuff that's not on there. And we've obviously been talking about a lot of issues at a series of forums, many of which are also, as you know, available online. So we're trying our best to get as much out there as we can, but still working on it. Right. I, actually, that you touched on exactly what my question was going to be, that there are some single issue voters out there that wonder maybe maybe this issue isn't important to Pat. So um, this kind of rolls into my next question, which is kind of two pronged. Um, Michelle was actually supposed to be here today, but couldn't make it because she wasn't feeling good. But oh. she asked me to ask it. Um, Hope you're feeling better, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> well, her question was about patriotism and how your patriotism may have evolved over time. And back in the fall, we saw this debate over taking the knee. Yeah. Um, and it was brought to right here in Ulster County when... The sheriff of Ulster County uh, asked people on an official Facebook page to boycott the NFL. So I was wondering if you could speak on that and um, some of your thoughts on the militarization of police and how that plays into racial justice. And obviously, that's a very loaded question. So um, just take your time with it. Yeah. Um, well, so I think... Um the concept of patriotism to me is what's driving me to run. It's this idea that when you believe that your country is not on track in, in one way or multiple ways, it's, it's your obligation. It's your duty to do whatever you can with within your means to get things on the right track. And, um, I, I respect, anyone who is willing to put themselves or their family and their reputation at at potential risk for something some value or ideal or institution that they that they believe in so the the willingness and the bravery of of people to whether it's to take a knee at a football stadium knowing they were going to get a ton of pushback for that or whether it's the willingness of of a woman who's been harassed or assaulted or attacked and to, to step up and, and bravely disclose that and talk about that, that is in the interest of making our country better. Like that is the essence of patriotism going back to our founding ideals of not being willing to tolerate a system that was unfair, that wasn't representing uh, citizens here and, and not just sitting back and taking it, but organizing and standing up, uh, knowing that it would put yourself at great risk. So, um, I think that is the essence of frankly, what, 
what all of us are trying to do right now, not just congressional candidates, but you all in doing this show and so many people that I see at a, a protest or the women's marches um, or a 12-year-old young woman who's producing her own video blog to talk about. I mean, that is awesome. That is patriotism. Um, and uh, the the, the sort of the second half of your question, the militarization of our police forces is something that really concerns me. Um, and, and we've seen how this has played out. It, cre- it continues to create a huge divide between those who are supposed to protect and serve and those who they are supposed to protect and serve. And that's fundamentally wrong and fundamentally out of, out of whack. Um, so I think we have to, we have to fix that and that will require, you know, serious leadership to, to bridge that divide right now. Sure. And just on uh, what are some of your positions on racial justice? You know, we have a number of prisons here. We don't have any federal prisons, but there are a number of state prisons here, which are frankly filled with uh, young minority men um, who were taken into the system. We have the problem of the school to prison pipeline right here in the district and in your high school where Kingston High School is actually two high schools where... uh, there's one group that is um, predominantly Hispanic and black that if they make it out, it's a huge achievement. So what are what are some of your thoughts about that? Yeah, two of my good friends, uh, I ran track when I went to Kingston High and two of my good friends, one of which was a co-captain of the team with me, they have been basically in and out of the prison and jail system in the city and the county and one in the state effectively since high school. And it's, it's been very hard to watch personally. And I know that this is just represents what thousands of families, millions in the country are dealing with. So I think to, to get at that, there's several pieces to it. Like one on the front end, we have to, I mean, the, the threshold under which people are currently being put into the system is, is far too low. We have to decriminalize a lot of the things that are being used to unfairly put people into the system then within the system i think we have to legitimately realistically give people opportunities to develop um and and to get out of the system as quickly as possible and then on the back end i think we have to stop um creating the dynamic where once you've been a part of the criminal justice system you are forever sort of tarnished or or marked and not able to get jobs, not able to have access to certain benefits. I mean, there's a whole regime of rules in place that that just reinforce that and and then make it more likely you'll go back into the the system. So we have to work on all that. Great. Um, So earlier during the town hall, there was a question that I wanted to contextualize a little bit more. So as we have this long primary season, it's been going to be over a year, I think, as we come up to June 26th. And a lot of folks are analyzing every little piece of every candidate's history. And a lot of people are concerned about your ties to defense contractors, because that's after you came back from Iraq, that's predominantly uh, where you are working. And a lot of your donations come from people who are working for defense contractors. And I think people, I think because it's so confusing, people translate that as you may then be beholden to defense contractors. 
So I wanted you to speak a little bit on that and uh, how you can convince some people that are very against taking donations from defense contractors and how you can kind of convince those folks out there that, um, as you said earlier, you're not going to be beholden to anyone. Yeah, so I've really struggled to share a story that is very personal to me and um, that speaks to why I started my company and a lot of what I've done with my life since I left the military, but I want to share it. And um, so um, uh, January 28th of 2008 is a day that um, I will never forget or forgive myself for. I was three weeks into my second deployment in Iraq. I was in Mosul. It was really, really bad there in terms of violence and risk to to both Iraqis and Americans there. We had just shown up and the unit we replaced basically told us there are, there are parts of this city of 2 million people where we don't even go. It's so bad that we don't even send patrols there. And of course we're the new unit and we think, well, we're, we're tougher and we'll, we'll go in there and you know, we'll, we'll accomplish the mission. And so we got a piece of intelligence that a top Al Qaeda target was in one of these neighborhoods. And, uh, I ultimately wrestled with whether to recommend sending a, a platoon of 30 us soldiers after this target. And I had very little information to make the decision on because even though we had been in Mosul for years and in Iraq for years, we had no way to put all that information together and understand what was going on. And so we basically made a gut decision and said, let's go. We'll, we'll go after this guy. So we sent a, a platoon. They go into the neighborhood. They get the target. And on their way out, the first Humvee with five young American soldiers hits a massive roadside bomb IED uh, in an intersection where if I had actually known and look, had the data, we would have known was a traditional point of, of risk. And five soldiers were instantly killed. The vehicle completely destroyed. And for the rest of my life, I will always ask myself and worry that was there something I could have done? Could I, if I had had better information, if I had just been, I don't know, braver to stand up and say, let's not send this platoon there. Could I have saved lives? And I don't think I even totally realized the connection between that story and me when I got out of the army, starting a company to basically fix that problem. And it's only as I've reflected on my life's history, I've realized that I actually think I started this company to to fix that problem because this was happening in hundreds of places around the world where we were putting American soldiers, young men and women in harm's way without the body armor and the vehicles and the information and the technology they needed to stay safe. And in fact, the reason that was happening was because we had gotten so far out of line in going towards this military industrial complex that Eisenhower warned about in his farewell address at the end of his presidency. And so, frankly, I get frustrated when I hear someone say, are you co-opted by the defense industry? Because I was literally battling against these big defense companies on behalf of both taxpayers and soldiers who I think were on, were getting the short end 
of the stick. So one of the companies that I worked with in doing this was a company called Palantir, which is a technology company in Silicon Valley who made a much better product for commercial customers, you know, banks, um, and, uh, and lot, lots of other commercial organizations. And we figured out how to get their technology, which was better and cheaper through a very broken co-opted defense acquisition system out to our troops. So I have, you know, I worked with several folks who work at that company for years and are good friends of mine. So some of the, you know, support of my campaign has been from them. It's been from people I served with. It's been from my friends and my family, like, you know, like a lot of folks who other folks in the race. So, right. I think you have to, or anyone has to draw on their network. And if that's where your network happens to be, right. Um, I think you have spoken on some of your policy initiatives that don't necessarily align with what people traditionally think of people who are in that industry. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something very personal for me. The fact that our defense budget is largely bloated because of this dynamic, the fact that tens of thousands of American soldiers are still in harm's way, still without the stuff they need, that's very much driving for me why a big part of why I want to be in this, in this seat and representing the community and and representing those, those folks as well. Sure. And uh, just going back to that same question where somebody came in and asked you about your time with those defense contractors, um, that scandal was actually came out of a hack by anonymous by WikiLeaks and uh, we're seeing now, um, I actually listened back to our episode from July where a lot of it was been talking about the investigation into Russian hacking of the election. And it's amazing We've done that you're nothing. here back. We've done nothing. You're you're back here. So um, you were actually targeted in the past and you uh, told me back in July that you heard a lot of people in the district that were concerned about it. And just this week, we saw 13 indictments yep. come down on Friday. So... In light of all that, what measures are you willing to do if elected as soon as you get in? Um, another question that people have sent to me is, are you willing to kind of take the lead if there's enough there to impeach the president? Well, yeah, I mean, I think so. Lots of questions yeah, in that last sorry, question. Yeah, sorry, I'm trying to rush yeah, through because yeah. I know you're headed no, no. to Um So first off, on the, uh, as you said, I've, I've been personally the victim of... Uh, hacking attacks, not just by the Chinese who stole my security clearance information as part of a hack of OPM, um, but also going back to my first job after the army, where Anonymous actually hacked my company's email. And uh, uh, one of the one of the things that came out, which is, um, which was released by WikiLeaks, uh, is a proposal that that we had been asked to work on that I had been had some part of. Thank you. Um, and and effectively, uh, what what basically happened there is we were approached um, my company by a law firm, a major national law firm, and they said, "Hey, we'd like you to put together a proposal. Uh, we have a bunch of data, and we know you're really good at analyzing data. Can you take a look at this?" And we said, uh, "Sure, but you know we can put together a rough proposal, but we'd like to better understand what kind of data is it, who's the client, and so on." So as we were developing the proposal, we started to learn more about what was going on. And it turned out that the client that this law firm was representing was the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. 
and that some of what they wanted to, to do or, or what we assume they want to do would have impacted labor groups um, and other you know, progressive groups in the country. As we realized that this was happening, we, you know, we immediately stepped away from the proposal. We never did any of that work. Uh, and frankly, it was as a young person in my first civilian job, a wake up call of, you know, this is a potentially really scary, risky world that we're living in right now, where there are a lot of bad actors and we have to be, be mindful of that. Just, because we're at the five minute mark, um, I'm going to be asking all the candidates this question. What distinguishes you from this field of six and what makes you stand out? And, you know, we have people who are also born and raised in Kingston. Although you served in the military, we also have another candidate who is also in Iraq. So what makes you different and why do you think you should be the one that we pulled the lever for in, in June? Yeah, I mean... I think it's about um, how do we figure out how to bring together people across. And one of the questions earlier sort of alluded to this as well. I actually think that you set aside the letter before and after people's names. We're all actually dealing with a lot of the same challenges that our economy is fundamentally stacked against those um, who are struggling. Not enough people have access to healthcare. The education system is under-resourced and failing a lot of us. And it's about, in that context, who can we have faith is actually going to have the, the backs of real people here who are working hard and doing everything they're asked and, and struggling. And to me, the way that, the way that you judge who's going to do that, who in those tough moments where you're getting pressure from your party leadership and, you know, potential donors and other interest groups, who's going to actually have the backbone and the integrity to stand up for the, their own constituents and their community and what's in the greater good. And, and I do think, you know, the way, the best way to measure that is actions speak louder than words. You know, who, who do we think through the way they've lived their life uh, and, and what they, and what they've talked about in their policies is gonna, when the chips are down, do that. And I think the best ways to, to proxy that are like, one, do you have skin in the game here in the community? Like, are you popping in? Cause this is going to be a stop on your, your pathway to whatever your personal goals are. Or in my case, like I was born and raised here, went to our, through our public schools. My family's been for, here for five generations. Like we're not going anywhere. This is our community and we have the long-term interests of this community, our community at heart. And that, that really matters a lot. Um, and then two, what are other similar moments in your life where you've been faced with those hard challenges? And have you been willing to put your community or your team or your country's interests ahead of yourself or your party or some other group? And I've done that. I've done it multiple times. And um, that's the mindset that I would bring. I mean, frankly, when I would go out on patrol in Iraq, like I would look to my left and I look to my right. I wasn't wondering or asking, are you a Republican or you're a Democrat? I was, you're an American and we're all in this together. And I think that's what it's going to take to win. And that's how we should evaluate uh, our candidates. You're listening to Spotlight 19. 
This concludes our show today. Thank you so much for listening. Reach out to us on social media. We appreciate your support. We will be back. Next episode is featuring Jeff Beals. Stay tuned and uh, keep the faith. <laughs>